Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone today. We, uh, uh, in our first service upstairs, we, we've been steadily growing up there, having some good numbers and all as far as the after COVID stuff goes. And, and boy, today we just took a big jump, you know, even further, great um, turnout for our first service. And so really happy about this and being able to see God's people being back together again. This is the Lord's day. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, but there is a downer piece of news I need to pass on to you. Um, if you haven't looked at your calendar, the summer is half over. <laughs> and for all of you motorcycle riders out there, that is a depressing thought, I know. But, uh, but we still got half a summer, so let's make the most of it. All right, I want to uh, tell you a little bit about a story. It's, it, it, it is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, um, and, and you'll, I think, get why here in just a moment. It's when Elisha became Elijah's understudy, okay? Elijah, you, you remember, I mean, he's like the premier prophet of the Old Testament. The Jewish people, he, they looked back in history as Elijah being the greatest of the prophets. And, uh, but, you know, as all people, um, he didn't stay young. He got older and older, and he eventually knew the time was going to come that he wasn't going to be able to serve as a prophet. And so uh, he found his successor that was going to step in. And that's what this passage is about. And the way this plays out, uh, I think, is just really neat. Uh, it's found in 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 19. It says this, Elijah left there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who, uh, as he was plowing, 12 teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was with the 12th team. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. Elisha left the oxen, ran to follow Elijah, and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Go on back, he said, for what have I done to you? All right, so this is just the first half of the passage. But we have Elisha, he's farming, along with quite a few others, and 12 team of oxen. I mean, this is, this is quite, a, um, quite an undertaking here going on in this field. And uh, then Elijah walks up and he throws a cloak, you know, over uh, Elisha's shoulders, and that was communicating something. It was communicating uh, like an invitation to come, follow me, spend time with, be with me, and uh, so he did that. And and Elisha recognized what that signified, and but then he ran up to Elijah and he said, "Hey, just give me an opportunity to go back and say goodbye to my parents." And Elijah's, okay, do it, whatever, you know, whatever's fine with him. And then this is what we read. So he, and this is Elisha, so he returned back from following him, took the team of oxen and slaughtered them. With the oxen's wooden yoke and plow, he cooked the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he left, followed Elijah and served him. 
I think this is so cool because Elijah was basically telling Elijah, hey, I just need to go back and say goodbye to some people. But when he went back, and I'm going to assume he did say goodbye to his parents because he got together in a fairly large gathering of people. And, uh, and so I'm going to assume his parents were part of all that. But a big part of what Eli Elisha did was he had a barbecue. He went back he had a barbecue. He butchered his oxen. You know, he broke up the, the yoke and all of this and started a fire and uh, had this huge meal, which I don't know how many people two oxen would feed, but it would be a lot of people. And so that's why I think fairly safe to assume his parents were a part of this because he would have been feeding all of the people that were out there running these 12 teams of oxen, plus their families, plus many more people as well. And, uh, and I just think this, this story is so cool because when you read through all of those verses, there is one word that just is left impressed upon your mind. And that word is commitment. <laughs> this was commitment. Elisha was like, there's no going back. There's no going back. I am going to do this. And, and I'm not going to be going back and carrying on life as usual. My life has changed. It's going a whole new direction now. Now, um, it's not the only place in the Bible you'll find um, a dramatic story uh, being told about commitment. You can go over into the New Testament and you uh, read about the conversion of Christians in Ephesus. These people that are giving their lives to Christ to become followers of Jesus. But, uh, you know, there's some baggage here with these people and the lifestyles that they had been living. And that's what this text is going to talk about. It's found in the book of Acts, chapter 19, starting in verse 18. Here's the way it reads. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Okay, so they're having this big bonfire. Because obviously sorcery is not compatible with Christianity, right? And this is what they dabbled in or this is what they were really involved in to whatever level or degree. But they knew they could not carry that on, continue with that if they were going to be a follower of Christ. And so they have this bonfire. Now, how big of a bonfire is this? Well, look at the next verse and a half. It says, when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I mean, this bonfire was big enough that people talked about it near and far. The people in Ephesus, boy, this was the talk of town. But the reality of the matter is this became the talk of the territory. Everyone was talking about this bonfire. Now, how can we calculate or figure out, you know, how big of a bonfire it was? Well, the key here is 50,000 drachmas, which we're kind of in the dark about because we don't deal in drachmas. One drachma was the equivalent of one day's salary, okay? 
And so what we're talking about here, the value that, you know, was a part of this bonfire, basically, if you had a person that was willing to work seven days a week, that person would have to work nonstop for 137 years to earn enough money to pay for all those scrolls that were in this bonfire. Now, there aren't a whole lot of people that work seven days a week. And some of you, you know, you work five days a week. So if you want to calculate that into it, you would have to work five days a week without a week off for 191 years in order to be able to earn enough to finance, in a manner of speaking, that particular bonfire. When I read that particular passage of scripture, there's one word that is left in my mind. And that is the word commitment. These were people that truly were committed to the cause of Christ, being followers of Christ. All of this kind of reminds me of a couple of verses that are found in a very short book of the Old Testament that some of you recently studied. It is the book of Ruth. And as the story of uh, of what is found there in that short book goes. Naomi and her husband, they lived in Israel, but there was a famine in the land. And so to get relief from that, they had to go to the east side of the Jordan River into the land of Moab. So they took their two sons and they moved over there for a spell. The boys, you know, grew, got older, ended up getting married, taking wives of Moabite women. But lo and behold... Naomi's husband dies, and both of her sons die. And so now it's just Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. The famine over in Israel is now gone, and so Naomi decides that she's going to go back to her homeland to be among her own people, relatives, all this stuff. But she impresses upon her daughter-in-laws, you guys are young enough, you stay here, you can surely find husbands and still have plenty of time to have a family. So you guys stay here and I'm going to head back. One of the daughter-in-laws agrees, okay, she'll go ahead and do that. But the other daughter-in-law, her name is Ruth. And this is the way it's recorded what Ruth says to her mother-in-law. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you from me. That's pretty powerful stuff, right? I mean, she, she, was just, she was just laying it out there. It was almost like a prepared speech. She just lays it out there to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then I don't know how a person can read verse 18 without breaking out in a smile. Because this is, you know, after, after Ruth says all of that, this is kind of the reaction that Naomi has. It, it says, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. <laughs> she knew she wasn't going to get anywhere with Ruth as far as trying to pressure her or convince her or list out reasons why it's a good idea to stay because uh, Ruth had effectively communicated her heart and she was wholeheartedly, you know, um, what's the word here? 
committed to staying with her mother-in-law. Committed. You know, we're starting a new series of messages today that involves people's favorite verses. Uh, at uh, June's primetime, a little over a month ago, that was one of the things that we did that evening was we gave people that were here an opportunity to share what their favorite verse in the Bible was and then to just kind of on a piece of paper summarize, you know, what the reason was, what their thinking was as to why this was a favorite verse of those. And from uh, all the ones that were turned in from that, you know, we ended up uh, kind of hammering out a six-part series that we're starting here today. And the very first one that we're going to be tackling in today's message is one that was submitted by Audrey Roberts. And uh, Audrey is, uh, uh, when you put a camera in front of her, a woman of few words. So there's a little short video that I want you to see. Okay, so this is from 2 Chronicles 16, the first part, first part of verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And the reason I like that verse is I just like it. I don't know why. I've liked it from, for like probably 40 years I ran onto it. And um, just makes me feel comfortable to know that even if I forget to pray, God's always going to know where I am, and he's going to know I'm committed to him, and he's going to help me. All right, so Audrey picked this verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, which I don't know that you would even be exposed to this verse unless you were on some kind of a reading through the Bible plan, right? Because this is kind of tucked away there in the Old Testament. But it is an impactful verse. And uh, she was reading from the NIV, so I'll show you that on the screen. It says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And Audrey shared that uh, this has been a favorite of hers for right around 40 years uh, so that it's, it's got a lot of staying power in her life. Now, there's a couple things about this verse that, you know, I want to break down for us here today. It's talking about something that God is looking for. The New American Standard version of this verse says, his eyes go to and fro, you know, as he's looking, you know, here. But so the basic idea is that God is searching. God is searching. He's looking. And this search is extensive, all right? It's, it's throughout the earth. So that would involve the greater Kansas City area. God is searching the greater Kansas City area, including, you know, areas like Bonner Springs, Shawnee, Lenexa, Mission, DeSoto, wherever, you know, you are from. God is looking here. But, but God is looking much further away, too. He's checking New Orleans. He's checking Miami. He's checking um, Tokyo. He's, he's looking throughout the earth. And, and this, this is, is where his search is taking him. He's not leaving any place out. What is he looking for? People whose hearts are completely his. That's what God is looking for. 
He's not looking for people whose hearts are partially his or even mostly his. He's looking for people whose hearts are completely, fully his. He's looking for fully committed people. That is what he's looking for. People like Ruth, people like Elisha. Another thing regarding this search is it is purposeful. As he finds people that are fully committed to him, um, what does he plan on doing with them? And this is the part that Audrey, you know, was really drawing attention to, is that God's plan is to strengthen them, is to support them. To put it into plain English, what God's purpose is in looking and then finding these people is that God wants to help them. When he finds someone whose heart is fully committed to him, then God is all about wanting to help that person. He wants to be there for them. He doesn't want them to have to um, tough out life alone. That, that's not his intent. He wants to be there to help them. Through all that. Now, this third little bullet I'm going to give, you know, I was trying to think of a single word to kind of summarize this with, and I really never found one, so I just slapped together a bunch of words. He often doesn't find what he's looking for, because that really, within the context, as I go on here the next few minutes, you're going to see that is what he's discovering, is that oftentimes he does not find it. So, I, I don't know, you could put the word unfruitful, but that really wouldn't be accurate. Um, maybe if you put added the word often unfruitful yeah often unproductive that might very well be descriptive you know of what God is discovering is that as God looks to and fro throughout the earth uh, it's not like he's finding a whole lot of people that are fully committed to him you know the Bible gives numerous examples of people with hard hearts he gives numerous examples of people with divided hearts, indifferent hearts. You even take the parable of the sower, which is in most of the Gospels. Jesus was, was talking about how there's the path soil, there's rocky soil, there's thorny soil, and there's good soil, right? And talks about when the seed goes there, what ends up happening. The thorns choke out the seed or, or uh, the, the rocky soil doesn't have enough depth and the plants wither and die or, or the hard soil, the, the, the seed doesn't even penetrate. Well, the reality is that Jesus is not talking about farming. He's not talking about literal dirt and literal seeds. Later when the disciples asked, can you break that down for us and help us to understand that better? Jesus spelled it out to him, them that he was talking about people's hearts, that this is what he finds in regards to people's hearts, that oftentimes people's hearts are hard. And so the word of God doesn't even penetrate whatsoever. Oftentimes people's hearts are shallow. And so the word of God may initially appear to have some penetration and effect on people, but it's not lasting. Oftentimes people's hearts are preoccupied. And so what seems to be promising initially ends up getting choked out because other things become priorities. But then there are people with good hearts, receptive to the word of God and respond appropriately. Now, I don't know if we're supposed to break that down and look at that percentage-wise and conclude 25% of the time he finds what he's actually looking for. 
I don't know that that's the way that parable's meant to be interpreted, but, but yet it does say that, that there's a, a greater likelihood that he's going to find something that isn't what he's actually desiring and wanting to see in a person's life. And that's what Second Chronicles chapter 16, within its context, also seems to be communicating. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't many people out there who... Uh, uh, cl don't claim an affiliation with the Lord because the reality of the matter is there are a lot of people out there. In fact, you may have a number of people in your extended family that claim to have an affiliation with the Lord. And, and some of those people may cause you to squint a little bit and say like, what, really? You, you ha have a connection with the Lord? You know, because you don't see any evidence, anything that, that supports that. There's a lot of people that claim to have an affiliation with the Lord, when in reality, it's not legit. Jesus has said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, but I'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. A lot of people who claim it don't actually live it. It's just kind of lip service, um, unfortunately. And again, illustrating the fact that oftentimes, this is what God's looking for, but oftentimes this is not what he finds. God seems to be saying in the Old Testament and certainly in the New Testament as well, he seems to be saying that if you're not completely his, then he's not completely yours. I mean, that seems to be what's behind so much of this, you know, that's being communicated. So let's go back to the verse. Let's look at this key verse that Audrey was drawing reference to in the second Chronicles chapter 16. The verse is found embedded within Asa's story. Asa was one of the kings of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Um, and the northern kingdom, they, they didn't have any good kings um, as far as godly and people of character. The southern kingdom had some but also had a lot that weren't. Asa, when his story is being told, there's a couple of chapters devoted to telling his story. Um, his story actually starts out really good. It starts out great. As a matter of fact, the very first full sentence that is devoted in the Bible in talking about King Asa, any one of us in here would jump at the chance if someone was writing a biography of our life, we would love for this to be the very first sentence of our biography. It says this about Asa. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. It's a simple statement, but boy, it communicates a lot. So like I said, he starts out really well. You know, he, he removes the foreign altars because there, over the previous generations, there have been numerous altars that have been set up for idolatry, for worship that uh, um, God, you know, certainly frowned on. Well, Asa was all about removing those. There were a bunch of Asherah poles, and uh, these were very much the thing of the day as far as idolatry was concerned. And Asa was all about having those chopped down and having bonfires with all of that. Uh, early on, um, Asa had a threat from a foreign army. 
And immediately Asa turns to the Lord. And in prayer, this is what we read. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Asa's attitude was very much, Lord, this, this is you. This is all about you and your honor. We're calling upon you, and we know no one can stand against you. But you see, the thing was, the knee-jerk reaction, as soon as Asa started feeling a foreign threat, is that he immediately was calling upon God. As soon as Asa found himself between a rock and a hard place in a jam in his life, his immediate reaction was to call upon God the Lord. And in so doing, God is glorified. It was that way back then, and it works that way today. God wants us to call upon him when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances in our life. He wants us to look to him. And that's exactly the way Asa seems to be wired early in his reign. And he does this, and God is pleased with this. Asa also heeds the words of the prophet of the day, a guy by the name of Azariah, son of Oded. You know, this prophet, you know, gives some instruction to the people that this is what you should be doing. And, uh, and so in the next chapter, uh, Asa is all about it. He leads the way. And here's what we read. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all of their heart and soul. See, this is what the prophet was instructing people, this is what you need to be doing. Asa, he was the front of the pack, leading the way. Let's do it. And he was influencing other people to make this covenant. In addition to all of that, another thing that we read about Asa is that he removed his grandmother from her position of influence. And back in that day, if you were a king, especially from multiple generations, you know, the throne being handed down. Um, a, a grandparent was, you know, an important person of influence in the kingdom. Well, here's the problem with Asa's grandma. She was still into the Asherah pole worship. So she had her own personal Asherah pole set up so she could worship. I mean, who's going to say no to grandma? The grandma of the king. Well, in this case, the king did. Asa said, absolutely not. He chopped it down, he burned it down, and he removed grandma from her influential position. This is why I say Asa, he started out great, but, oh, you hate it when there's that word that enters into a story. That seems to be going so well. But 36 years into his reign, he fizzled. That's a deep theological term in case you aren't familiar with that word. Now, actually, that just seems to be the appropriate word. As I'm reading these, these few chapters about Asa, uh, and I see what happens, and the unfortunate transition that somewhere happened, we know it was by year 36, maybe it was happening before that, um, the word that comes to mind is he fizzled. He didn't stick with it. He started so strong. But, boy, that's not the way he's going to be ending. 
For example, he starts being threatened by the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, this guy isn't even as powerful as the king that he had to face early in his reign. But Asa doesn't call upon God. By all appearances, it doesn't even seem like it enters into his mind to consider calling upon God. Instead, he contacts the neighbors way up to the north, the kingdom of Syria, the king whose name was Ben-Hadad in Damascus. Certainly an ungodly man and an ungodly kingdom. And he calls upon them for help. Help us out against Baasha and his military. Like I said, when we call upon God, when we find ourselves in a jam between a rock and a hard place in moments like that, that brings glory to God. What do you think it reflects when we just totally leave God out of the equation? Doesn't even enter our mind to consider to do it. That's where Asa was living at this moment in time in his life. The prophet, who is a different prophet now, he uh, speaks a message to Asa about how inappropriate it is that what he just did in calling upon Ben-Hadad in his army, and you shouldn't be doing it, you should be calling upon God. Well, anyway, Asa doesn't like the prophet preaching to him, and so he puts him in prison. So he's not responsive to God's spokesman of the day. In addition, it says Asa started mistreating the people in his kingdom harshly. And eventually, Asa ends up contracting some kind of a disease in his feet. We don't know what exactly this disease was other than that the word severe is used in reference to it. But the scripture doesn't say anything at all whatsoever about him calling upon the Lord and praying for help in that regards. But it certainly talks about him going to the physicians. There's nothing wrong with going to physicians. You got a physical issue going on in your life, you know, seek out doctors who have been trained and who have worked with situations like this. But certainly begin it all by bathing it in prayer. Because as people of faith, that's what we do. That's what we should do. We pray. And I don't need to preach to you about that. You guys know that. You know, the office, we're regularly, every week, we're getting contacted about people. Even on the connection cards that are turned in on Sundays, people are communicating with us about prayer needs. And many of them involve physical ailments and issues and, and all that are going on in your life or in a dear loved one's life. And, and sometimes you put confidential. You say, don't pass this on to others. It's kind of of a sensitive nature. So we honor that. We pray about it specifically within the staff, but we don't let it go any further than that. Other times, you know, we'll put it out there in a prayer email that gets sent out to, to many other people to be praying as well. You know this is an approach that God wants us to take. And so we try to honor him in this regards. But with Asa, no. Apparently, it didn't even seriously enter his mind to do this. He seemed to start so strong, but he didn't follow through, and he ended very poorly. And that's what prompted these words in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, uh, 16, verse 9. It says, for the eyes of the Lord range 
throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That is found smack dab in the context of someone who wasn't fully committed to him. You know, but the question really this morning, the pressing question isn't, what was going on with Asa? The pressing question today is, what's God seeing you? That really is the issue at hand. Because we know God sees, we know God's looking to and fro. And so I can guarantee you, he's looked into your heart. He's looked into your home. He's looked into mine. Again, this is what he's looking for. He's looking for people who are fully committed to him. This is what he wants to see. He wants to see us as part of that verse. But maybe your reaction is, oh, but I'm, I'm imperfect. I'm, I struggle. I, I, I have such a rough time with all of this stuff. It seems like some days maybe I've taken two steps forward and the very next day I take three steps backward and, and I'm just, just not very consistent. Well, my response to that is, that's just it. That's the part he wants to help you with. That's why the verse says he wants to strengthen you. He wants to enable you. He wants to empower you. He wants you to help you to be the person that he's calling you to be. So you look in a mirror and you say, well, yeah, but I just, I don't always seem to be on top of my game spiritually. Well, that's why you need to lean on him hard because you know you can't do this alone. He wants to help you to do it. Remember, it's not, it's not all on you to live up to all of this. The Bible does not teach that it's all on your shoulders. It does not teach that. He wants to be there. He wants to help you. He wants to empower you. One of the verses that, that comes to mind when I think about this is found in Ephesians chapter 3, and it really is a cool statement. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work. What's it say? In the world? No. It says within us to him be glory. I don't think that statement is limited to talking about the Holy Spirit, but I do believe it certainly is talking about the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's cool to see the superlatives that are found in that verse. To him who is able to do immeasurably more. You can't even measure what God is capable of doing. Even of all that you were, were to ask or possibly imagine, your imagination can't go far enough. He can do beyond your imagination. And how's all that possible? According to his power that is at work within you and within me. The word power is the word dunamis, which uh, the transliteration of that word is where we get the English word dynamite. According to his dynamite that is working within us, according to, to the impactful power that God has, 
that resides within each one of us as a believer. God can do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine. He wants our hearts to be completely his, meaning he wants us to be fully committed to him. That's what he's looking for. That's what he desires within our lives. And as I was pouring over this verse and studying the surrounding verses and gathering some thoughts, I had three particular verses that just kept coming to mind. And finally, you know, the third time it came to my mind, kind of like chicken scratch on a paper, on a, uh, on a note, I, on a piece of scrap paper, I, I wrote these three verses down. Just thought, all right, you know, I just keep having these verses. And then I continued with my study of the context and all. And when it was all said and done, these three verses just really kind of like cream rises to the top. And, and it, it really, I think, did a good job in my mind of summarizing in a New Testament uh, context, this is what God is looking for. We see what God is looking for in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. He's looking far and wide to try to find people who are fully committed to him. You find similar but different expressions in the New Testament that are communicating the same thing. Let me show you these three verses. And perhaps one of these will be the one you'll commit to memorize, or maybe all three of those this week. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, let me explain this a little bit and why it kept coming to my mind. The whole idea of offering sacrifices, that was, wasn't like a, an unknown sort of thing back in the time that the book of Romans was written. This was a part of worship, you know, as animal sacrifices, all this within Judaism. But even outside of Judaism, you know, there were other religions and forms of worship of pagan gods and stuff like that that involve sacrifices. But the thing that they all had in common is that you would take an animal and you would kill the animal and you would put it on the altar. And it was fully devoted, fully committed, fully given to either the living God, you know, as a form of, of worship in Judaism or, or to some pagan god. But it's almost like an oxymoron when you look at this verse because it's talking about, you know, this sort of thing. But yet it's saying that we are to be offering ourselves as living sacrifices. That we are to, in a manner of speaking, we are to each crawl up on the altar and just offer ourselves, Lord, I'm yours. Lock, stock, and barrel. Completely yours. On what basis are we to do that? In view of everything that God has done for us, in view of his mercy. When you reflect on everything that God has done as far as what's recorded in the scripture, the sending of Jesus and the sacrifice on the cross, you think about all that, but you also think about all of the intervention that God has had personally in your life where he's been watching over you and caring for you and bringing blessing into your life in view of everything that God has done. This is the reasonable thing for us to do in response. 
crawl up on the altar and offer ourselves completely to him. Fully committed, fully surrendered. And I use the word reasonable intentionally because that last line, the word spiritual, some of you have little footnotes in your Bible. And if you look at your footnote, it will say reasonable. The word there is, is if it were transliterated, would be the word logical. This is your logical act of worship. In view of what God has done for you, the logical, the reasonable thing for you now to do is to crawl up on the altar and say, God, I'm yours entirely. See why this verse was coming to my mind as I was studying 2 Chronicles 16? Let me give you another one. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. Christ died for all so that those who live would not continue to live for themselves. He died for them and was raised from the dead so that they would live for him. Very simply put, and this isn't a complicated verse, very simply put, it is saying, he died for you. Now it is your turn to live for him. That's the bottom line here. He died for you. I mean, he set his glory aside in heaven. He came down to earth and he was flogged. He was crucified. He did all that. But he did that for you. He didn't do that because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was exactly where he knew you needed him to be and where I needed him to be. He did that for us. The appropriate response is now we live for him. He died for me. I now live for him. Fully committed. So you see how that verse comes into play here because it's not about us anymore. It's about him. And then this verse comes to mind. This is part of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 10. He makes this statement. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. You have certain dreams and goals and aspirations in life. And if you, in a white-knuckled sort of a way, cling to that and insist that I want my way, I want to do what I want to do in life, then Jesus is saying, you know what? One day you're going to wake up and you're going to lose all that. But if you just let go of that and give that up for me, then you're going to find your life. You see, what I believe Jesus was talking about there and what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians and again, what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12, what, what I believe is behind all of this is that what the Lord wants us to do is not just kind of pull up, open up the back door and say, hop in, Jesus. I want, I want to take you with me in life. Go ahead, there, make yourself comfortable there in the back seat and ride along with me in my life. That is not the visual here that is being communicated in any of these passages. Any of these three in the New Testament and certainly not in that Old Testament passage. Rather instead, the visual I want you to have in your mind is if we're going to use the car analogy, is think of it like this, that, that we pull up 
We open the door. It's the driver's side door. We slide out from behind the steering wheel. We invite Jesus in, into the driver's seat. And we say, Lord, it's yours. Where are you going to take me? That is fully committed. That is what fully surrendered looks like. You see, being a Christian is more than church attendance. Church attendance is a good thing. But being a Christian is more than church attendance. It is more than praying before meals. It is more than avoiding cussing. It is more than volunteering to serve, to help someone who's in a needy situation or to help a particular ministry within the church. Um, being a Christian is more than being generous. You know, whether it be to the ongoing uh, work of spreading the gospel or whether it be just meeting the need of someone who is struggling. All of those things are good and all of those are things that we all ought to be a part of, no doubt. But being a Christian is taking the title of your life and signing it over and saying, Lord, it's yours. Like I said, lock, stock, and barrel, it's all yours. Who I am, what I represent, it's all yours. Fully surrendered is what being fully committed is all about. And that is what the eyes of the Lord are looking for in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. But the question is, is that what he sees when he looks at you? Is that what he sees when he looks at me? You know, as we prepare for our time of communion, I'm going to throw something out here that maybe you've heard this before, but if you haven't, it's going to, it's going to knock your socks off, okay? Terminology that is found in the Bible in regards to Jesus is he is called Lord and Savior, right? And that's terminology we use. Every time someone gets baptized, we use that kind of terminology. We ask them questions. Is Jesus, are you accepting him as your Lord and as your Savior? Anytime someone places membership in this church, we're doing that. It's all part of the good confession of faith. Here's something, though, that you may not know. In the New Testament, the word Lord in reference to Jesus, which basically is communicating master, right? The word Lord is used Three hundred or six hundred and thirty-five times, six hundred and thirty-five times. In other words, it's all over the place. Referring to Jesus as Savior in the New Testament is found twenty-four times. Might be a little bit eye-opening when you hear that. Six hundred and thirty-five times he's referred to as Lord. 24 times he's referred to as Savior. You look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts records the first 30 years of the church, the birth and the growth of the church, 30 years following the resurrection of Christ. In the book of Acts, those 28 chapters, 102 times Jesus is referred to as Lord. How many times is he referred to as Savior? Two times. Now, I'm not taking anything away from Jesus being our Savior. 
I mean, because like they say, that's our bread and butter. I mean, that's, that is what we are totally dependent upon him to save us from our sin. And that's why he came into the world and what happened on the cross and what happened at the tomb. That's the reason all of that happened, is to save us from our sin. And quite frankly, that only needs to be stated one time in Scripture to make it so, right? But what I want you to appreciate is that in the minds of the apostles who had spent time, three intensive years with Jesus, and as they were spreading the gospel news of Jesus, I want you to see what they were talking about and what was a big part of their perspective is they referenced frequently the lordship of Christ, that he is the master of our lives, that we are fully committed to him. And yes, they talked about him as being Savior. But uh, boy, they sure didn't sweep the lordship of Christ under the rug. If anything, they made sure people heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it. Because they need it, as we need to know. Because this is what God is looking for. He's looking for people who are fully committed. So during this time of of communion, I want you to spend some time reflecting on what it is the Lord has done in dying on the cross on your behalf. But I also want you to spend a bit of this time looking in a mirror at yourself and asking, what's he see in me? Do I fit in that Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 verse? Let's pray about that. Father, I thank you for, for your word. I thank you for the fact that parts of the Bible that we read were written thousands of years ago. But yet the relevance of those words still rings as true and vivid today as what it did way back then. Father, I pray that we'll take it to heart in understanding your heart better and what it is that you're looking for in our lives. Thank you for loving us more than we deserve and for the incredible sacrifice that was made to free us from sin. And Lord, I pray that when you look closely into our lives, that you see a sacrifice there on our part, a living sacrifice. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.